Welcome to Deep Roots, a project of Cortez Community Radio. Deep Roots is an examination of contemporary environmental issues and traditional knowledge and culture. Legend tells us first peoples of the Northwest Coast cultivated shellfish. To explore this further and to consider current shellfish farming and our future, Odette Auger speaks with Judith Williams, author of Clam Gardens. Mink was unhappy. The tide would not go down to the level of his food. He stole Wolf's tail and held it to the fire. Wolf called out, Hey, stop that. What do you want? Mink hollered, I want the tide to go down further. Okay, said Wolf. I'll make it go down to the barnacles. Mink was not satisfied and held the tail closer to the fire. Okay, okay, said Wolf. I'll make it go down to where the cockles grow. No way. Mink said, I wanted to go down to the clam beach, and he held Wolf's tail right in the middle of the fire. Oh, howled Wolf, and he made the tide go down to the lowest level of the beach, to where the clam gardens were built. Imagine being out on the water, looking back toward the beach. If it's low tide, you will see them, rock walls creating terraces like rice paddies, consistently at zero tide point, following flowing, fitting the natural geography of the bay. Now we're on the beach at very low tide. Slopes down, look at all the zones, like stripes. The rocky top zones, pebbles, sand, eelgrass, algae, and the shellfish. Right at the tide height where shellfish flourish, we can walk along gathering food. First peoples decided to extend the surface area right there by flattening the slope Families and communities built rock walls to create a flat surface, up to eight feet deep in some bays, adding shell hash and pebbles to the beach behind the rock walls, creating a garden to seed, grow, and harvest clams. Judith Williams, the author of Clam Gardens, can tell us more. It's interesting to go back a little bit to how these things came to my attention. And um, I was told to go and look at these structures by Elizabeth Harry Kikus, who is a Klahus woman. And uh, we had worked on a couple of other things, sharing information, so I I did know her. And one day she just said, uh, you should go up to Wyatt Bay on Quadra Island and look at the structures that we built for raising butter clams. She was very specific. And she told me where to go. And uh, I did go up there, but she warned me that I could only see them in a very low tide. And that's a factor in why these things were not known before. They were not known to archaeologists or anthropologists prior to the work that I did with, with, uh, that I did and uh, uh, Dr. John Harper did. And that is a really unusual situation that these huge formations that you can see, and they are considerable size, some of them, were not thought to be man-made, nor were they thought to be doing anything on these man-made structures. And the the reason mainly is that there's two factors. How were such big structures not seen? And um, that's an oddity. And that has to do with the tides, that these things were built to be used at a very low tide. And the second thing is that um, the development of anthropology uh, in North America uh, goes back to um, the days of Franz Boas. 
And Franz Boas uh, was convinced that the First Nations here had moved from very primary living situations into quite a highly developed civilization without going through an uh, agricultural period. So in fact, he maintained that. Um, that was a theory that he was working with. Now he's a very important man and he has a lot to do with our understanding of anthropology and I don't mean to say that he was not a great man, but he had a bias. Sometimes if you have an overweening theory, you can't see outside that theory, right? And he trained all the early anthropologists. And so they weren't even looking for these things. They were very interested in salmon culture, which was spectacular. And uh, he wasn't looking at other things, food sources. And uh, as I began to look at them, I looked at the food sources that they had. And I looked at them from the point of view of the uh, housewife who has to provide food for the family. And salmon three times a day after you know the dead of winter, after it's been stored for quite a while, that's pretty boring, right? <laughs> that hardtack salmon. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I got interested in what else they ate. Mm -hmm. And I looked at these uh, uh, structures that, that Liz Harriet told me about, and they made absolute sense to me. But when I reported them to the archaeology department, they refused to believe me, and they refused to believe Liz's information. And that was really irritating. And uh, I tried for some time to get people to pay attention to them. I took some quite notable anthropologists to see them and they did not trust me and uh, uh, it wasn't until Dr. John Harper and I both started working it took us 11 years for these to be accepted as valid sources of, uh, of food for native people that was cultivated that is not just found and that's because native people here on the coast have been dubbed hunter-gatherers mm -hmm. and I always thought that wasn't right in my head I didn't think that could be right and, um, and uh, uh, they didn't just hunt and gather, they certainly cultivated some things. So these huge structures turned out to be uh, deliberately constructed. And there are places where they're a mile long. So these are rock walls, sometimes curved and attached to offshore tidal islands. And those structures are quite carefully engineered so that they, they um, eliminate uh, erosion to the beach and they'll withstand quite considerable impact, and wave impact actually solidifies the walls. And um, once those walls are, Liz told me that they repaired the walls at YMB when they went there, and they, they vary from being about three feet tall to about seven, eight feet places, and they're built out from the shore. Later on, John Harper and I took um, Dr. John Mitchell, who was one of the early uh, anthropologists here on the coast, and he did a lot of the site reports on native sites. Mm -hmm. And he, we took him and stood him on uh, clam gardens in, in um, Caniche Bay on the west side of, northwest side of, of Quadra. And I, I remember standing there with him and saying, well, what do you think? And he said, you guys were right. We, we missed them. We missed them. And I think it was because of how they were traveling through the area and um, they just weren't there at the, at the lowest tides. Dr. Dana Lepowski at Simon Fraser started a project there. It's been going now for, well, I would say at least six years, maybe longer. And she works with the Slyaman, uh, plus some other groups. And they've published quite a bit online. You can hunt up stuff that's on the Simon Fraser site. I think that there's a book probably coming out as well, or is out. And so they have done the kind of scientific research 
that I didn't want to do. I mean, what you really had to do, for instance, to test if in fact, if you augment the beech, does it enhance the development of butter clams? Does it grow them faster or not? Because if, if it doesn't grow them faster, you're no further ahead doing this. You can increase the amount though. Mm. Right? And so it's very instructive to look at areas like the Broughton Archipelago that had a huge population, they think. And again, it was John, Dr. Mitchell who told me that. He said, thought that perhaps they had 20,000 native people lived there at one time. That's an awful lot of people to feed mm -hmm. from natural right. sources. Okay, so in that area, they, they, there are over 360 clam garden sites which you can go and visit. And they built them because they needed all that food. There's no actual big run of salmon right there. The big runs are up the inlets, Knight and, and uh, Kingham. The people who lived in Kingham at night used to come out and get clams outside the inlets where there are no real clam beds. So it, there was an exchange of kinds of foods, but the people at Guilford Island, are, there were jokes made that they, their, their tummies looked like the inside of a clam, all green, because they lived on clams. I mean, it was a joke, it was a rude yeah. joke about them, right? <laughs> but it, it tells, it, everything like that tells you a piece of information. Mm -hmm. Oh, why would you make that joke? Well, in fact, maybe they did eat a lot of clams, right? That brings me more to the human aspect of it. I know I've read about springbank, clover, specific families might have tended a patch. And it was similarly thought to have not so much been planted, but just working with what was there and enhancing it for longevity. But I'm wondering, what are the thoughts on these clam gardens? Did specific families tend specific gardens? And do they know if it's women work or? It was thought that the, um, the beds were, were owned, right? And passed on. And that they may have been passed on through women. And that they were mainly tended by women, children, and non-elite men. The elite men being, um, that was one of the reasons it was suggested that the information might have been lost is because the anthropologists were, of course, fascinated by the salmon culture, understandably and concentrated there, and that didn't spend a lot of time necessarily talking to women. And um, yet the women seemed to have been in charge of the clam gardens, but they took children. There's children still, people still alive who remember being taken to work the clam gardens by their mothers, right? And told, you know, you either dig or you roll rocks, right? So they do remember this stuff. Right? So there's enough, just at the end of this information about people actually using it, I was very lucky because Liz Perry and her family, they still used the gardens at, at White Bay. So they were very familiar with them. And they were a very well-informed family. Her mother, Rose Mitchell, is the main informant for Slam and Land, Slam and Life, a, a very important book on the coast um, that Bouchard and Kennedy did. And she was just a superior informant about Native, native stuff, and that's a, that's a very important book as a result. So I was lucky to get information through that family, because they were articulate and they wanted to share. And Liz knew I was a writer, I think she wanted it written down. And so, you know, stuff gets lost pretty easily. And uh, she was always willing to um, add to what I knew, mm -hmm. you know. And I think women were involved in the, in the whole thing, it, it seems like it. A bit of that information came from other people that I was told, people who, who do research with First Nations and who hear that end side of the story. Not everything gets shared to everybody, 
not everybody asks the right questions. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, I didn't ask Liz about this. She told me to go look. <laughs> she knew she had a receptive. She had she had an agenda, yeah, of some kind. I would say. There's some gaps in even what we were learning, and I'm hearing you address them right now. It seems strange that such a, a highly developed social culture would have happened. Like there is a leap there, and it. I mean, when you're speaking about it, it comes together and makes sense that something was missed. We often talked about they're so unique that this had happened, but there was no discussion on why. People didn't talk and talk in terms of technology, but you're right to use that word. I mean, the Clam Garden is a technology and, um, and, and quite a, a developed one. A lot of this stuff, the reason it wasn't taught and wasn't even known about goes back to Boaz. Boaz came with a theory. He was struck, as everybody was, by the development of Northwest Coast culture, the sophistication. It's considered the most sophisticated cultural culture in North America. It has dance, it has art of every kind, it has music, it has uh, architecture, you know, it has this incredible development within it. And uh, it was claimed in Europe at that time by most of the people who were developing the social sciences, you've got to remember we're in development, that a society could not develop uh, into a sophisticated uh, society without going through a period of agricultural. That's why I mentioned it early. And Boaz came and looked at the culture here, and he didn't see much in the way of cultivation. And certainly nobody ever grew grain or anything like that here on the coast. Right? And so he, his theory was that these people skipped the area, the agricultural period, and went straight from, I don't know what, to um, uh, this very sophisticated uh, culture that, that he found there, you know, so highly developed in many kinds of ways. And because he had this theory, he was trying to prove his theory, it blinds you to things. And I think that and then he trained all these students. So everybody went forward. Like you said earlier, there, there were a number of plants that are native plants to the area, but again, we don't know to the degree to which they've been cultivated and expanded. I mean, every time you cultivate a plant by digging it up and carefully putting roots back in the ground, you're, you're basically gardening. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly, we know that that's what they did. There's one place that I did find, and it was really after the book was organized in Loughborough Inlet, where there was a clam garden, and there's a land garden right next to it. And that was very interesting. And we never, we only really found it because a bear uh, had dug up one of the roots under a a uh, rock. And I pulled stuff out and I realized it was one of the edible root plants. Mm -hmm. You mentioned springbank, clover, things like that. I mean, we we know that they used these plants. They were not a major part of the diet. That is, they didn't sustain them, but they they were certainly part of the diet, as berries were a really important part of the diet. And you needed carbohydrates. They were certainly looking for carbohydrates. And so most of the, the land plants that you hear about, like fern roots that were roasted and things like that, that's carbohydrate, mm-hmm. right? Well, the thing about butter clams is they have more carbohydrate than, say, salmon. Salmon doesn't have any. So mussels and clams have a certain component of carbohydrate. They're sweet. If you taste them raw, you'll, you'll see it's sweet, right? That's carbohydrate. And so uh, they certainly wanted these things. So they figured out how to get them. (laughs) 
that's why I don't, I always think that the, uh, the hunter-gatherer name is, it probably shouldn't be used with it, much of anybody, but I really shouldn't be used here. It was a big mistake. You are listening to Deep Roots on CKTZ Cortez Community Radio, an examination of environment and traditional knowledge and culture. If you live off the land, mm-hmm. houses have to be built and trees cut and canoes made, and you know, there's just lots of labor. So dividing the labor up makes sense. And women had smaller canoes. People don't usually hear about them so much. They see it, you know, they hear about the big fancy canoes. But women had small little canoes that they could tool around in the area. In the Broughton, it's really interesting because you can travel to these areas of clam gardens by not crossing a lot of water, and it's not dangerous. Mum and the kids could go off and work on a clam garden uh, in one of these small canoes. There were clam gardens adjacent to the villages, and I think one of the reasons, this is one theory anyway, that you get the development and outward working of clam gardens in an area as dominant people tend to maybe have the important clam gardens near the village, but other people have to go a little bit further perhaps to an area that that nobody else has developed or doesn't want or whatever. And um, uh, the other thing I've been told, I got a lot of information from people up in Bella Bella. There's a young man there who was trained as a provider, Carl Humchett. His family seemed to have quite a bit of knowledge about uh, just retrieval of food generally, and they have still have a lot of food there. But he said that when they went fishing, they would leave um, the local by-village uh, clam gardens and food systems there for the old grannies, they said, he said. So they would make sure there was food really close to, the, to where the people lived who were being left behind. He said his grandfather, one time they went out in the boat and, he, and the grandfather said, did we leave enough food for the grannies? There's no walls in front of me here, which is why this was a good village site. You could really pull your canoe up in here. But if you go further along below Potlatch Road, there are some structures there. But one place that people should go and have a look at, because it's relatively untouched, is the beach facing um, Desolation Sound, south of uh, Squirrel Cove, uh, towards uh, Seaford. Very, very interesting. And there's, there's rock berm all the way around it, and a proper canoe slide, and it's known to be a very good uh, clam beach for butter clams and probably every kind of clam, and even the big guys, the horse clams. And that one, I think, is an interesting place to go, and you can walk to it along the beach at low tide. But you do have to go in a very low tide. You're not going to see anything otherwise. And the other place is probably up in, in the Coulter Bay, up in that area, there, there are walls I've seen from the water. The other place, of course, is the gorge, but it's been, because the gorge was used for the exporting of Pacific oysters, restock the French oyster beds, there was a lot of traffic on that surface, and there still is traffic on it, so it's not pristine, but it is there. Few places on the coast that are very superior for growing shellfish. The gorge is the, the best shellfish growing area on the coast, so it's natural it would have been cultivated by First Nations, and it's natural that it's turned into you know, a shell, shellfish farming area. Um, if you wander the edges and you know what you're looking for, there's pockets of what's called clam hash, which is what builds up from the cultivation. And one of the saddest things I ever saw in the gorge was a clam garden, clam hash, completely embedded with netting, left over from 
uh, one of the uh, shellfish farms. And I don't mean to say that all shellfish farmers are polluters. They aren't. Some of them, you know, care a great deal about what's going on, and they also should because it's what the, the water that swirls did through there is very important to the, to the growing of, of their um, shellfish. It's probably a, an area that should have been understood before people were allowed to go in there, but that does, those licenses predate the Clam Garden book. But the gorge is, is, a, is a bit of a dilemma. You have housing, you have people living there, you have a marina, you have shellfish cultivation. And there's no reason that you can't have shellfish cultivation, but certainly the effects on the bottom of the, of the gorge, maybe we don't even know. And we do so many things, and then later we think, oh, that wasn't such a good idea. But um, it seemed when shellfish growing was started here that it seemed like a good idea. It was kind of passive. Uh, economically, it's a good idea. You don't have to feed these creatures. I mean, we stupidly put salmon in pens, and then we have to feed them. A creature that actually looks after itself is more than capable of turning up on time, practically, on your watch to spawn again. And uh, we seem to decide that we should feed carnivores, which we almost never do. We feed cows great. So we kind of a bit, got a bit strange about what we should be growing. But I don't see there's anything wrong with raising oysters by hanging them. The paraphernalia, if it's left around and embedded in the, in the bottom... That sounds like a very bad idea. There's things called predator nets. They're to keep the predators off the seed. And if they are left in place and just embedded, that can't be a good thing for the bottom of the ocean. I had a very good experience. This would be about 1987 or 88. At that time, Danny Louie was the Clahouse chief. And a man named Roy Francis was the Slyaman chief. And they decided that they would take the new Clahouse boat, the aluminum boat they still have, and take a trip up into Toba Inlet. The two young guys had actually never been up to the end. And they invited me to go along. And there were so a couple also. He'd grown up in Redonda Bay, working, his family worked in the Clampham. And we went up Toba, spent the night up there. And I must say, it, it opened a lot. There was a man named uh, Joe Barnes, who was a half Clahouse, half English family. And he was with us, he was an old guy. I knew where some pictographs were. We'd already started to learn about those. And we just saw amazing stuff and went up to the um, old village um, burial site in Toba and then up the, the valley in a borrowed van from the logging company. And it was, the, it was the beginning of my really traveling further through the coast. We'd been doing little expeditions. And so I, I have to thank Danny because it was his idea to invite me. And these guys were very excited themselves. They were thrilled to be up there. And um, uh, I remember Roy Francis taking, jumping into the end of Toba Inlet in this cold, cold water. He said, my grandma said I had to do this if I got all the way up here to fix myself on this location. We came back through Namu. I got a kind of hit there, like I, just a, a kind of vibe of some kind. And when I came back to UBC, I hunted up information on Bella, on Namu area, and discovered people had been living there for 9,000 years, according to the archaeologists. And it changed my attitude towards the coast. You can't feel that and realize people lived there all that time and start, you have to start thinking, what were they doing in England where my family come from? What were they doing on the continent, you know? What were they doing in Africa 9,000 years ago, right? 
Here people were at Namu cutting up salmon uh, and, and also sea mammals. So they, it was a colder time and there were a lot of almost Inuit-like uh, fishing going on. Uh, you can't see that, that they did this for 9,000 years there and not be really fascinated and interested in the, the culture that was developing there. And now, of course, they are doing research up in Calvert Island with the um, Hakai Foundation. And they think people might have lived there for 13,000 years. And so they keep pushing back these dates. Mm -hmm. uh, every time somebody discovers something, it's even more interesting what was going on here. So I was interested in the, the kind of interface between First Nations here on the coast and the incomers. And I've written a lot about that because the, the, the incomer society, of which I am one, is so short that when I was doing the history of all that stuff, I'd be through it in an instant. <laughs> because, you know, it was, I was, when I first started, it was only 200 years. So there's not even actually a lot of history <laughs> to work with. So right away you get back to First Nations, and so naturally one wants to start looking at that. Danny is, was um, a spark for me. And uh, we did continue to know him until he died. And, and uh, on my screensaver, on my computer, is a picture of that day at a pictograph ledge. It's a great photograph. Not a great photograph of Danny, but it's a great photograph of, the, of Danny and Roy and a woman, uh, whose name I forget, looking at this rock art that they'd never seen. You know, they were all young. It was a big experience for them. I went away from my conversation with Judith Williams many thoughts going through my mind. Local foods, 100-mile diet, local economy, and food security at a time of uncertainty. Shellfish farmer has been the answer for thousands of years. Balance is the obvious thought, and maybe that is oversimplifying a layered issue. And yet I wonder, in an uncertain time with concerns around food security, and to live well with resources within our environment, what if these questions have already been addressed? by traditional wisdom thousands of years ago. Marina Island once had clams as long as bananas, growing one meter deep in the sand. Ocean temperatures are rising, but I wonder, one meter deep in hash substrate? Could that be cooler? One shellfish farmer has mentioned the fact that oysters have existed in this exact form for over 200 million years, and so they must have survived many climate changes. It's a hopeful thought. The question of feeding a growing population, the scope could be local-based and consider the range of this farming. This wasn't just a bay or two near a couple of village sites. The technology itself probably extends from the San Juans all the way up to Alaska, in one way or another. But the big, big area is in the Broughtons. It's amazing. I mean, that's if, if somebody's going to look at clam gardens, that's the place to go. Either Wyatt Bay, where I was first sent, or Kanish Bay, which is on the other side, there's a narrow gap there, uh, and uh, then up in the Broughtons, which every bay you go into, you can find the walls. But there's just lots of village sites and lots of people living there, and so they worked on them. And they may have worked on them for a long, long, long time. I think we have to think, rethink a lot of the whole coast in light of our understanding of the amount of people that, that lived here and how long they lived here and how, that they had time to work this technology out and many other technologies that we, we, we see were, were very successful. It is said that the San Juan Islands of Washington State may have had a Salish population of 20,000. 
How did they feed that population? Clam gardens were very intensively farmed there. Today we hear a lot about how science will save us, how we need strong science to address our environmental concerns. What if we revisited traditional wisdom? What could we learn? Think of it, family, cooperative scale, community-based projects, web of life. He, he'd grown up in this culture where that's what you did. And they moved clams around, they moved uh, rocks with big barnacles around, and they certainly reseeded clam gardens. He was very clear about that. He even said something I, which I quite loved. You bring in mature cl butter clams and baby butter clams, and you bring enough for the wolves because they are going to dig stuff up in a loose substrate that's been worked. So he, he seemed to have a real grip on how you actually manage this. Grandfather said, did we leave enough food for the grannies? Will we leave enough for the grannies? Will we leave enough for all our relations? Thanks to writer-producer Odette Auger for this edition of Deep Roots. Technical help from Rob Selmanovic and Sean Cowell. Deep Roots senior producer is Greg Osoba. Cortez Community Radio is grateful to the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the Victoria Foundation, other donors, and the Clahoose First Nation for their support. More information about the series can be found at cortezradio.ca. Thank you.